Hello, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Plant Powered People podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, your co-host and founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, your co-host and founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. On this show, we talk with plant-powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant-based living because we want to empower you to learn, explore, and evolve in a kind, sustainable, and healthy direction. And today, we are really excited to delve into a topic we've shockingly never covered before on the podcast, which is environmentalism and how our food choices impact our planet. We're so excited to chat with our friend, Nick Consumpas, also known as Farmer Nick, who is one of our favorite environmentalists. You might remember him from an earlier episode of this podcast, which was our intro to gardening and growing food episode at number 45. Definitely check that episode out. It was really great. Nick is a plantpreneur who's passionate about all things green. As a full-time plant coach, urban gardener, and landscape designer, Nick's mission is to leave our earth greener than when he found it. He wants to give people the knowledge and confidence they need to create their own green spaces in pursuit of environmental action and social justice. Nick has been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Food Network, and Business Insider, as well as the Netflix original, The Big Flower Fight. He is also a host of Netflix's Instant Dream Home and author of Plant Coach, The Beginner's Guide to Caring for Plants and the Planet. We're excited to welcome him on. Before we jump into the episode, we'd like to thank our sponsors today, Panachiza and Ritual. Panachiza is really exciting because it's a brand new vegan Parmesan cheese. It's a brand that just recently launched in the U.S. And it's plant-based grated Parmesan cheese, but it's actually made with only five ingredients. Organic cashews, nooch, nutritional yeast, garlic powder, Himalayan sea salt, and apple cider vinegar. How clean is that? Panachisa was founded by Janessa Steenberg, who grew up in a multi-generational Italian family and developed this cheese on the premise that food should taste good and be good for you. Every serving of Panachisa delivers two grams of protein and nine essential vitamins and minerals. It's also shelf stable for up to 18 months. I love that. Great way to prevent food waste. You can check them out at panachiza.com, which is spelled P-A-N-A-C-H-E-E-Z-A.com and enter the code panachiza to save 15% off your first purchase. Sprinkle it, sauce it, savor it. Panachiza's Parmesan Reimagined. Our next sponsor is Ritual, a fully vegan B Corp science-backed vitamin company we adore. You know, we love talking about poop on this podcast. We've had gastroenterologist Dr. B on the show to talk about the importance of gut health and prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics are all the rage in the health world. If you're a little hazy on these, prebiotics are fiber. They're basically what feeds probiotics. Probiotics are the beneficial bacteria that live in our gut and make up our microbiome, the composition of which is largely dependent on what fiber we consume. And postbiotics are the compounds made as probiotic bacteria break down the fiber molecules. Well, Ritual has crafted a daily three-in-one symbiotic plus vitamin that includes all three to support a balanced gut microbiome. And they come in delayed release capsules designed to help all the good stuff survive the journey. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. There's no more shame in your gut game. 
That's why Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. You can visit ritual.com slash plant powered to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. Hi, Nick. How are you doing today? Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Round two. I'm excited. Yes, it's a very special few who have been on two times. I think you're the well, you're only the third person in five full seasons. Wow, what what a what an elite group of company. I'm very <laughs> very honored here. So go listen to his other episode. It is fantastic and uh, also gives some of the backstory of his history. But for this episode, we want to dive right in talking about a passion of yours, which is environmentalism. And it's actually something that I personally have not learned in depth. It's, it's for me, animals first, and that's where I've spent a lot of my time learning. And I personally am curious knowing more about all of the things environmental environmentalism related that pertain to our food choices. So first, Mm. can you share a little bit about your backstory and how you even got into environmentalism? Absolutely. So to to start, I will say I was kind of the the antithesis of an environmentalist and certainly not a plant-based one at that. So I was the guy in college who was kind of mocking the meatless Monday people and oh, I'm going to have an extra cheeseburger now and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it wasn't until I started growing my own plants and my own food back in 2014, after I graduated from, from college, did I realize like, okay, if I care so much about this process and have a newfound sense of empathy and respect for farmers and the environment and the plants that we're consuming, why am I not an environmentalist? You know, I needed to have that first level of exposure to fully understand my role in this ecosystem. And just by being around more plants, I realized that I had to step up my environmental stewardship. So I now try and use plants, whether they're house plants on your desk or gardens that you have in your backyard, using those as stepping stones to getting people to care more about some of these larger issues. Did you understand the environmental impacts even within the gardening system, uh, the home gardening system. When you started gardening, there are so many different ways to Mm. garden. And uh, when I first started, I would just go to Home Depot and buy all the things. Uh, But now I'm really thoughtful about what I put into my own backyard and, and into my own food growing process. So did you make that connection up front or was it something that you learned along the way by uh, reading and following social media accounts and doing your own research? It certainly took some time. I was the guy who was going out buying the synthetic fertilizers from miracle Grow and not realizing the, the damage that it has long-term on creating that soil biome that we talk about, that microbiome, that ecosystem under the soil that we can't see, even with our own eyes. But being able to foster life in that is so, so important, not just to the environment, but also to the health of your plants. I mean, for me, I just wanted to see plants growing. But what I didn't realize was if I want sustained growth year two, three, four, five, six, I needed to cultivate an entire living, breathing ecosystem in my little square foot plot. And to do that, 
you know, you have to start thinking about all of the the kind of the, the cyclical roles that plants play, whether it's composting, whether it is um, some of the beneficial insects you can bring into the process, using worms as vermicomposting in different ways to create an environment that fosters awesome plant growth and doing so in a way that is beneficial to our planet. So it certainly took some time. You know, I just started composting probably in the last four years or so, but I've been gardening for eight. So no matter where you are in your path, there's always something new to learn. And I'm constantly trying to develop new ways to make it as clean as possible and beneficial for the plants. I love that. And where along in that journey did you start thinking about the outside of the uh, square foot plot that you had uh, in, in terms of your food choices? And maybe more specifically, let's talk about animals within your mm. food choices. Absolutely. So for me, cowspiracy got me, right? That was one of the popular ones. And I never went vegan for health. It was always for the environment and the animals because watching that, I realized like, wow. And I, one of the stats that really jumped out at me was that a person on a plant-based diet can grow all the food that they could use for a year on a sixth of an acre, which is not a ton. Right. And that's if you're home growing, right? Let alone all of this land that we have that we use to grow corns and soybeans, which we feed to animals. 40% of the arable land that we have is used for animal agriculture. And I think it it's like for every, you know, 10 calories of plants, uh, we only can produce one calorie of, of animal products. Like that's a problem. That's just the math doesn't add up. So when you view it from that perspective, and that's really what got me on the plant-based journey. I was like, this just isn't efficient, right? Let alone the, the animal impacts, which are you know atrocious in their own regard. But we need a system that we can feed people the, the proper way, a healthy diet without growing the same two or three crops over and over and over again to feed the animals that aren't even meant to eat those crops in the first place. So it kind of was a twofold approach for me. And Cowspiracy was the documentary that really got the wheels in motion here. It really is like a light bulb moment for all the different topics within environmentalism and when you kind of realize how your food is connected to them. And I know a lot of our listeners, this is a newer topic for them as well. So I'm really excited to dive in and sort of like simplify, give the 101 for our food choices and how they impact the environment. So I want to dive into water pesticides, pollution, greenhouse gases and global warming, deforestation and biodiversity. Um, but let's start with water. Water conservation is a global issue mm. of importance. The three of us live at least part-time in California. And so we're extra familiar with living in like a perpetual drought. And the common advice that most people think of or, or share is to take shorter showers or turn the water faucet off when you're brushing your teeth. But those are pretty minuscule in comparison to the water impact of our food choices. So can you talk a little bit about that? How do our food choices relate to water conservation and why is it so important? Great question. And this is this is one of the things that I think the corporations do a really good job of kind of pushing onto the consumer. Oh, you know, take shorter showers and you know, try and do these other practices that will, you know, eliminate your water usage. And I was the guy that was turning off my faucet when I'm brushing my teeth, but that is such a minimal amount of water when you think of the scale at which we need water to produce our animal products. So one of the, the stats that I referenced quite a bit 
in this conversation is the fact that it takes over 1,800 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef, which is crazy to think about, right? Like we are out here in California talking about the drought and all the issues we have, and we got to conserve water here. And that's all very important. But just by changing our food choices, we can cut back significantly on how much water we are consuming over the course of a year. And, you know, obviously there, there are many different things we can do from a, from a plant perspective, you know, transitioning our lawns, which are very consuming of water as well, being able to do more native plants in that regard. But those are difficult things that take a lot of time and a lot of money to change. Whereas changing something like your diet is actually something that I, I feel, in my opinion, is something we have a little bit more control over and something that certainly won't break the bank as opposed to creating an entirely new landscape in your yard. Yeah, I want to share a few more stats on that because I think it is just, it is truly mind-blowing when you, when you realize um, one lactating cow can drink about 30 to 50 gallons of water every single day. Um, wow. So when you're thinking about a glass of milk, it can take up to 2,000 gallons of water to produce just one gallon of dairy milk, which is that crazy, is right? Crazy. Yeah. Right? And we can just drink water instead, you know, and eat some plants for our nutrients, but or plant-based right. milks. Um, and in the US, more than 50% of all water consumption is used for animal agriculture. And mm. it it's just, it's pretty mind-blowing. And there's the the empowering thing is because so much water goes into creating dairy and animal products, a simple switch to like a plant-based meat or um, soy milk instead of cow's milk, or actually oat milk, I think is one of the mo- least water intensive yeah, milks out there. Yeah, oat milk instead of almond milk even, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you switch to oat milk, you can have a huge impact on reducing our water our water usage and water needs. Totally. No, it's, okay. it's, so, it's so, so important. So that's water. Let's move to pesticides. And this is one that Mm. I think I love talking about because so many people are really passionate about eating organically, especially if you're an environmentalist and that's just like core to who you are. Um, And people, myself included, will happily spend an extra 50 cents to get organic produce. And But most people don't realize that there's this pesticide buildup in animal products too. You don't even think about the animal products that you're buying. uh, And the organic relating to that. So can you talk a little bit about what we should consider with with pesticides and just anything else in that realm with our, our food choices? Definitely. So pesticides is an interesting topic because people think that organically grown food has no pesticides. And that's not necessarily true. Organically grown food means no synthetic fertilizers, but you can still have pesticides being used if they are biological or natural in nature. So just that's something to to be aware of for listeners, just so they're aware of that. And many farms um, throughout the the smaller areas and more regional farms uh, can't even qualify for being an organic farm because there's certain standards and things that make it really difficult for them to be labeled as organic, even though they are doing sometimes the most uh, for the environment and and really doing their best to limit their ecological impact, whether it's pesticides, ecological uses, resources, what have you. So that's just something to keep in mind there. Um, the, the history of pesticides is actually really interesting because uh, it's funny, I was, I was actually at a documentary the other day talking about just this and the history of our food system. And pesticides came about because of all of the oil we had been producing during World War II. We ramped up our oil production because we needed to fuel the war. 
which once it ended, the oil companies had all of these massive manufacturing uh, companies and, and areas that were producing so much and they had nothing to do with it. So what they did was they said, okay, what if we could extract uh, some of the, the things from this, be it nitrogen, what have you, and insert it into our crops and find a new business for all this so it doesn't go to waste, right? Capitalism at work. And you got to give them credit for the creativity and technically it's repurposing <laughs> in a strange way. But that's how our chemical fertilizers came to be. And the challenge with that is not just the fact that it's negative for the environment, but the energy needed to produce them is so much. And when you tie it to the oil industry, which most people don't even realize, you're you're consuming things that are coming from something that we preach about not breathing and not digging more and drilling and this, this and that. It's just, it's scary how many feelers the oil industry has in our food system. Yeah. And I had never considered before that, okay, if I buy, you know, a bundle of lettuce at the grocery store, I'm thinking about, are there pesticides on this? Just not even fully understanding, you know, what they are and their impact, but just being like, "Ah, I don't really want that on my food. But I don't think about how many like pesticide infused soy crops, corn are fed to the animals for years before that animal is then killed and turned into meat. And so like it can build up in in their flesh basically. And then you're still getting that as as well as like, of course, antibiotics and all these other things that we're pumping into animals. The the quality of the feed that we're giving animals is like the lowest possible quality often because that's not part of it. Absolutely. That's that's the biggest problem, right? You're driving through, if I'm driving up to y'all in Northern California, I'm going through Central California where all the CAFOs are, where you have all these giant farms with all the cows there, which are not meant to be living there. They're in such close quarters, they have to be fed antibiotics because they're just situations from a health perspective are not ideal. They're being fed corn and soybeans, which are grown as commodity crops in the Midwest from farmers who are so reliant on Monsanto So it just keeps recycling into our food system in so many different ways. And for many people, it's it's so hard to avoid because most people can't afford to buy the grass-fed products that are very, very expensive. And they don't even realize that the cheaper products that they're buying are already subsidized by the government, whether it's dairy or meat in general. So there's just so many layers to this, which make it very daunting. But the more you know, the more we can be mindful of these choices and hopefully move move towards something more plant-based. That's really helpful. I was driving last week um, back from my mom's place and I had to like physically hold my nose closed <laughs> for like oh, different segments driving past what we call like, well, uh, yeah, and just all the cows um, just living in, in their, their poop basically. So the next thing I want to talk about is what I like to call pollution. Um, and all of the poop in the United States, farm animals produce 130 times more waste than all of the humans combined. Um, wow. That's a lot of poop. But what the heck are we doing with all of this? Like this is something, <laughs> you know, like what is happening to these poop? There's these like poop lagoons that are just building up and causing all sorts of havoc for our planet. So can you can you talk about what's the issue with waste? What happens to it? Mm. Why does it matter? Does it have an impact on our planet? Well, that's the thing. Not a lot happens to it at that scale, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about regenerative agriculture, and this can be a a tricky subject to navigate because regenerative agriculture is oftentimes including 
animals in this conversation where they are smaller farms that are utilizing animals for rotational grazing where their waste is actually very beneficial. That is the natural cycle of things. They should be able to graze the land, produce their waste, and that helps the plants grow and fertilizes the land. That's ideal. The challenge is, is people use that as, I don't want to say an excuse, but a, a justification for eating animals in the first place, where I would love to see a model one day, and I talk a lot about this with some of my friends who are more involved in the farming movement, is to say, what if we had these animals rotationally grazing, but just you don't eat them afterwards, right? Like, why do we have to take that next step? Uh, because they still need to, you know, live their lives the way we want them to, to live. So I think it can be very tricky when you're having that conversation with smaller local farms which are doing that kind of regenerative practice. But mm -hmm. at the larger scale, there is very little happening with that waste. And that's just ending up in our, in our waterways and our streams and our palatable drinking water in many cases. So it can be overwhelming to, to think about how much waste is actually produced. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, a lot of these farms just continue to get worse as our climate issues become more exacerbated because there's just nothing they can do with it. It's almost a human rights issue in some in some aspects. I want to just read a short clip that I included in my course, The Dairy Detox, that I created a while back um, about what happens to some of this, this pollution. So animal feces and urine are pumped into giant cesspools, picture like the size of four football fields. Naturally, when these toxic lagoons fill up, they need to be emptied somehow. And the common method for doing that is to spray this liquid waste into nearby fields, creating a fine mist that drifts downwind and pollutes the air. But what goes up must come down. And in many cases, this misty waste reaches neighboring communities. Kept well hidden from the public, this is a serious health hazard and a clear example of environmental injustice as it poisons neighboring low-income communities with hazardous waste. Like, mm. that's so sad. We don't see it. We don't hear about it. It's all, yeah. like, far from view. It's not talked about. But it's just one of the many consequences that factory farms um, and the animal agriculture industry is not held accountable for. You know, they can dump things into water. They can dump yep. things in the air. Yep. They're just getting rid of this toxic They can burn waste. it. Yep, they yep. can burn it. Uh, and they don't have to pay a cent for what's causing harm to communities, people, our environment, the future of our planet. Um, ultimately, we all and our fu and future generations are going to pay the, the, the price of this. So I think it's really important that we learn these things and we take accountability that this is awful that these industries are doing it. But when we go to the grocery store and we pick up meat or a, a carton of milk, we're supporting this. We're like financially supporting this um, these practices, which is so, so sad. So it's so exciting yeah. to hear about all the regenerative agriculture and, and, you know, smaller farms coming up doing things a lot better. Um, but right now, if you're buying mainstream products, um, it's important to be aware uh, yeah, of, of the, the harm they're causing and the simple solution. Like right now, the simplest, easiest solution you don't have to think about, you don't have to trace where things came from. Like if you're buying mm -hmm. tofu, this isn't happening. Nick brought yeah, up you're, earlier. You're hundred percent right, Mish. Oh, go ahead, Tony. Uh, Nick earlier brought up Cowspiracy. And to me, that was one of the stunning parts of the film. The most stunning parts of the film was to watch what happens to the communities which live around this terrible waste issue. And as a lifelong Californian who has driven up and down the state many times uh, and 
here in our own area of like Stockton or um, along along both five and ninety nine, you can like taste the haze as you drive through it, yeah. and it's it's just it's awful. And I feel for all the people who live in those communities. You're hundred percent right, Tony. I think this brings up an interesting concept of what we call intersectional environmentalism. And I don't know if you're familiar with, with Leah's work, but they basically talk about how so many of these environmental issues are tied to social inequities that we have in our society. We, the three of us, are very fortunate that we will never have to experience what it's like to live next to an oil refinery or a CAFO that we are not experiencing the effects of that environmental degradation and our health degradation in, in the process. So we, you're right. When we make those choices, it's not just about the animals. It's not just about the environment. It's for the people too, who are often unseen and don't have a voice in many of these situations and don't have the resources to be able to, to fund policy and and different you know legal action to take against these monstrous organizations it is so daunting for them but the power of our dollar can have a huge impact far beyond just the animals and the environment we're trying to protect that's really beautiful nick thank you for sharing that um okay so one of the great issues of our time that we all have you know a responsibility to either take action or decide not to is relating to global warming um, and greenhouse gases is very tightly tied to that. And often if you'd ask, you know, someone, how can you combat global warming? Many people would think, you know, drive less, bike more, switch to a hybrid or electric vehicle. But these are things that are completely outside most people's means and mm. control. Uh, but there's actually far less expensive and much more impactful changes that we can make in our everyday lives that can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and uh, have a positive effect on um, combating global warming. And it can be as simple as switching from cow's milk to oat milk or, you know, a, a pound of meat to tofu. So can you talk a little bit about that? What, why is this such a big issue? Why is it important? Why? And then what should people know about it? Great, great topic. Something that's very near and dear to me here because the individual actions oftentimes get downplayed by the overall discussion. We're so quick to say it's on the corporations, it's on the corporations, which it is. But change needs to come from both sides. And if we just say it's on the corporations and continue to do the things the corporations want us to do, we are not modeling the change we want to see in the world. And the best example I can give of this is this electric vehicle craze that has really taken over, especially in the last three years or so. But if you looked at the Super Bowl uh, last year, there were six electric car commercials, six. And that is only because there is a demand from the individual consumer. That's it. So if 10% of people said tomorrow, I'm not eating meat on Mondays, people would adjust, companies would adjust and have to cater to our needs. But when we just accept the fact that, oh, we can't change this as an individual, what are you doing then? Are you supporting politicians who are advocating for these changes? Like Cory Booker, who's a huge, oh my God, he's such a big role model for, my, for me and has done so much for the animal agriculture industry, um, and is trying to combat factory farms in a more plant-based approach. He's amazing. 
Um, but what are you doing every single day? Are you modeling the behaviors that you think are going to not just be better for the environment, but as we talked about, be better for the people who are most affected and most impacted by this that we might not see. So for me, eating a vegan diet is the easiest thing I can do and thing I have most control over. There are certain things I can't control. I have to fly for work. That is how I do my advocacy work and it's how I support myself, right? That is something that I can cut back on my missions. I can use offset programs, which are you know, not always the best, but even so, the more we can demand from these corporations, the better, but we still need to, to have those behavior changes reflected in our own lives as well. Beautifully said. Um, and if you're not uh, super versed on like, why is animal agriculture conti- contributing to global warming? I mean, a bit, you might've heard about cow farts, which is sounds kind of funny, but cows, you know, they eat, they poop, they burp, they fart and their farts and, and burps don't just smell bad. They actually release methane, which is one of the most potent greenhouse, mm. ga- ga- greenhouse gases that goes into the atmosphere. Um, and when you consider that there's more than a billion cows on the planet, it's it really does add up a lot. Um, to hit with a few more facts, just one dairy operation can give off thousands of pounds of methanes every single day. And when you think about 365 days in a year and hundreds of thousands of dairy operations worldwide, like that, that's a lot. And uh, this is really adding up. Um, several scientists have said that it's going to be impossible to combat global warming without addressing livestock production and global dietary trends. And then, of course, there's the quote that many listeners have probably already heard before, but according to the to a report by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, animal agriculture accounts for more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation sector combined. So that's more than all the planes, trains, and cars in the whole world. What we eat is having an impact on global warming. And luckily, there's a lot we can do about it by making more sustainable food choices. Mm. Couldn't agree okay. more. <laughs> Okay. So the last sort of deep dive topic I would love for us to go into is deforestation and biodiversity. This is an important one for anyone who loves animals, exotic animals, the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, which, um, you know, is being cleared to create grazing room and grow soy and corn crops, feed farmed animals. So what are your thoughts on this? What's important for people to know? What's the takeaway? Deforestation is not just to, you know, produce the wooden furniture in our homes. In fact, majority of it is to just clear land for cattle. And when you see what has happened in Brazil, specifically under the Bolsonaro regime, which has thankfully ended, and we'll see what the the new leader there can provide in terms of protecting the rainforest. But so much of that deforestation was to make room for cattle grazing and farmers. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't support, you know, local businesses in these areas and people trying to make a living, but it's all about how we can transition them to other forms of economics that can benefit them and their families. So whether it's deforestation or just any type of animal agriculture in general, We have to be able to provide different solutions for that. Now, deforestation is a huge problem, right? Because you're you're past the point where uh, you've already cleared that land. Right now, you're you can't plant those trees again. It's going to take years and years and years for those to come back. 
And what I don't think people realize is when you have programs where it's like, oh, you know, it's okay. They plant a tree for everyone that they take down or something like that. You're, you're taking out ecosystems. You're taking out carbon sequestering powerhouses that are centuries old in many cases. And when you're disrupting the mycelium in the soil and removing the plant life from that, planting a few saplings is not going to, to have an impact until they are centuries old again, and they're probably going to get harvested before that point anyway. So it is really difficult to see that happening. And again, another case of an environmental, environmental impact that we are not privy to. We're not there on the ground seeing it happen. So we just assume that, oh, the cows are there grazing, but how did they get there? We have to start digging deeper and asking the question of how and why so that we can make smarter choices. And that's not to say that there won't be you know, deforestation that occurs for, for plant-based agriculture, right? But to, to take down a, a forest and do so in a way that is going to be replaced with another industry that is equally bad for the environment as opposed to something that is going to be far fewer carbon emissions and something that's actually going to be able to sequester carbon and pump it back into our, into our planet, I think it's just, it's, it's really sad to see and, and a connection not a lot of people end up making. It is, for some reason, one of the most like heartbreaking, tear-jerking parts of this all to me because I, I get sad when one tree is unnecessarily cut down like because I think of mm. the life that lives in, in, you know, in that tree. But if you think about a forest and all of the, the creatures, the animals that call it home and, you know, the good it does for our planet being torn down is just so heartbreaking. And fun fact, raising animals for food is responsible for about 70% of the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, mm -hmm. which is considered to be the lungs of our planet. It's home to more than half of the world's species of plants and animals. And as you were saying, Nick, clearing this forest, it's irreversible. And it's one of the most short-sighted things that our species has ever done. It is, it's just, it's so sad, heartbreaking, devastating. And the the basic thing to think about when you're thinking about your food choices and the environment is basically the lower on the food chain that we eat, the fewer resources generally are required for that food. Mm. If you grow a I plant love that. and you eat the plant, the resources that it took for you to eat that plant is what it took to grow that plant. The water, the sun, the time, the soil, the nutrients, those are the resources that are involved. But if you eat something that eats plants, you not only are taking the resources to keep that presumably animal alive or insect, you know, whatever, but you're, you're also taking the resources of all the plants they've eaten through their lifetime. And with today's farming system, it's also like if they're drinking water, how does the water get there? It's got to be transported. If they're eating food, how does the food get there? It's got to be transported. Mm -hmm. So there's like the driving of the food. There's the growing of the food. It's just exponential, the amount of resources that go as you're eating higher on the food chain, especially when these animals are not like living life out in the forest and then you eat them. It's they're like all of these resources are for one purpose and that's to create that food on your plate. And it just doesn't make sense if we want to live as a sustainable society that's being kind to our planet. Absolutely not. And that's why I stress the importance of growing food. If you can grow any amount of food, any amount of food, you are lowering your carbon impact. Because if you live in a place, especially places like New York or any four season climate where during the winter, you're oftentimes having to bring in food from 
you know, California, Arizona, Mexico, that's food miles. The average food takes 1500 miles to get to your plate. Now here in California, that's probably a lot lower because we have a lot of access. But to be honest, California is not the best place to grow either because there is no water. And we've kind of forced our will upon the land and the climate here in a way that's really taxing. So the more we can grow ourselves and just place, even if it's a pound of food you grew a year, right? Whatever it might be, that is making an impact. And I think it's on people like us and, and especially in my profession, being a garden designer is to make it easy for people and help them feel empowered that they can start growing and reducing their carbon footprint as well. I love that because listening to the two of you speak throughout the episode it can feel really heavy, especially if you have been or you had been contributing to these really awful systems. You can feel overwhelmed with grief or with just being unsure of how to move next. And you're giving people uh, an impactful way to move forward. But for people who don't want to grow their own food or who can't, don't have the time, don't have the space, don't have the interest... What other steps can they move forward? Let's start with one. What's one thing, one actionable movement that someone who's listening today can make going forward? So if you're not going to grow your own food, which I know can be a, an intimidating task for, for many, especially depending on where you live, kind of three tips that, that I recommend the most. Number one is not buying new things. Be, buying things at thrift stores, vintage shops is so, so fun. And I don't buy any of my clothes new. I go to the thrift stores. I'm looking for new furniture uh, at these different uh, consignment shops and estate sales. Like It's so much more fun to, to walk into a, a thrift store not knowing what you might find as opposed to trying to buy something new every single time. Now, if you're not buying anything new, you're cutting down on the resources used to produce it, you're cutting down on the resources to transport it, and you're cutting down on all the packaging. A lot of our different uh, items come wrapped in single-use plastic, which is the bane of my existence. So not buying anything new is great. Uh, number two, utilizing electric transportation or public transportation is amazing. I drive an electric car here, but when I'm in New York, I'm constantly on the subway. There are no Ubers for me when I'm in the city. And it's so nice to be able to drive around LA, especially knowing that I am not producing emissions. And it can get tricky because people will say, oh, you know, but our grid is still not 100% renewable. That is true. But in states like California and in many other states, it's getting cleaner and cleaner every single year, which I think is so beneficial to this EV movement. And the last thing I'll say that relates very much to our plant-based mission here is, is eating things that don't come in plastic. My food shops are 100% plastic free. Now, that forces me to be creative in the kitchen, but it prevents me from buying processed foods and prevents me from buying foods that are packaged in plastic, like meats and different things like that. It does mean I'm not going to be buying you know, the Beyond Meats and, and those as much. Um, I will typically get those if I'm out at like a baseball game or something and don't have another option. But doing so will not only cut back on your single-use plastic use, but also make you healthier in the process because you're buying whole foods and learning how to cook them properly. That's wonderful. And 
We've also spent the episode talking about how the environment is so negatively impacted by eating meat. And so if someone listening to this is eating meat to lessen their meat consumption can be incredibly helpful as well. Okay, Nick, you have lots of good stuff going on in your life. You produce so much good content. Where can people find all of your good stuff? So if you want to learn about all things green, you can check me out on Instagram at Farmer Nick. TikTok is the same. And then my website, FarmerNick.com, sharing different tips, blog posts on these different topics. And if you have any plant questions, feel free to DM me. I will do my best from afar to make sure that we are keeping your jungle fresh and healthy. But you can even find me on Netflix. I was on a, a show this year, which was super exciting called Instant Dream Home, where we renovate the homes of deserving families in one day, which is very, very exciting. Um, But if you want to take a a less stressful approach to to plants, you can also check out my new book, Plant Coach, The Beginner's Guide to Caring for Plants and the Planet. That just came out uh, in October of 2022, and will cover all things, you know, making your world greener, both for yourself and the planet. So, yeah, that, that is Farmer Nick in a nutshell, the life of a plantrepreneur. See, I was not joking when I said you have a lot of good <laughs> stuff going on. You are like the busiest person doing amazing work. Thank you so much for using your time today to chat with us and educate me and our audience about our food choices and how they, how they really, really impact the environment. Thanks so much for having me. A quick reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Ritual and Panachiza. You can find Ritual at ritual.com slash plantpowered to get 10% off and pick up their Symbiotic Plus and Panachiza to check out their new vegan Parmesan cheese. You can find them at P-A-N-A-C-H-E-E-Z-A.com and use that code Panachiza to get our special plant-powered people discount of 15% off your first purchase. That was another great episode with Nick. And I know I learned a lot. I mentioned up front that environmentalism is not something I have done a deep dive into. And this is such a great inspiration to look even further and learn the statistics on my own and just further strengthen my commitment and desire to living in the least harmful way as I can. And that's manageable for me and my family. And so thank you again, Nick and Michelle for educating me on so many things that I didn't know. And then also refreshing some things that I did know. I think that it's information is so important and undershared. So if you did find this episode helpful, please do share it with anyone that you think this would be helpful to or if you're any group in any groups or on social media, um, I think this would be a really, really great one to share because again, yeah, so many people are just not aware of the environmental impacts of our food choices. Also to support you along your journey, as always, Tony and I both have tons of plant-based recipes on plantbasedonabudget.com and worldofvegan.com and foodsharingvegan.com. So we will link a whole bunch of resources over in the show notes, as well as other sustainability guides, other environmental information, all of the, the resources that Nick has. So you can check those out. 
we have lots for you there. We've also done a couple other, well, several other episodes that touch on sustainability. We did one with Colleen Patrick Boudreau about composting for beginners, episode 61 and others. So be sure to check out our past episodes as well. That's all going to be linked up at plantpoweredpodcast.com and then click, click through to this episode. Also, if you've been enjoying the season and would like to support the show, we would really, really, really appreciate it. You can do so at patreon.com slash plantpoweredpeople. We'll also include that link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for listening, for supporting us and being part of our community. We always, always, always appreciate it. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.